As human beings, we tend to have some issues with authority, do we not? We have some issues with submission to authority. We think we know best. I know I do. I think I know best. And so sometimes I find it very hard to submit to someone else's authority. Some, there are places in my life, there are pieces of my life that I don't want to surrender to Jesus. I'll be honest. There are pieces, places in my life that I don't want to surrender to Jesus. And Jesus wants it all. That's the problem. See, Jesus expects me to give everything over to him. He wants me to surrender everything to him, and yet there's this, these pieces of me, these parts of me, these places in my life that I don't want to surrender. I think we're all that way. I think there's, you know, if, if we were to be perfectly honest, if we were to be completely and totally transparent and honest, we would all say that there are places in our lives that we're just not ready to surrender to Jesus, whether it's in our homes, whether it's at work, whether it's at church, whether it's in our personal lives, whether it's a sin with struggle that we have with sin, that there is something in our lives. It could be our money, our time, uh, our, our, our volunteering. There's something in our lives that we're all going, you know what, Jesus, you can have like 95%, but this 5% I want to keep to myself. We don't live lives of total surrender. We don't live lives of total devotion. Instead, we just kind of keep a little bit back for ourselves. And I think that Jesus wants it all. That Jesus wants everything. Jesus wants total surrender and total submission because Jesus is the king. And when you come into the presence of a king, you do not come flippantly, but rather you come in awe and reverence and respect and you submit to the authority of the king. We're going to look at, it's Palm Sunday, right? We're going to look at a passage from the book of John this morning. It's John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. It's just a short little passage we're going to look at. And if you've got your Bible, grab it, turn to John 12, 12 through 15. If you didn't bring one, you can grab one out of the chair in front of you. It looks like this, and it's on page 762 of the Bible in the chair in front of you. Page 762. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, that's all right. We'll get you there. Or if you want to use your favorite app on your smartphone or tablet, you can use that as well. However, you can get your hands on a Bible. We want you to do that. We're looking at John 12, 12 through 15. And before we look at those four verses, I want to talk a little bit uh, about what was leading up, the events leading up to this point. In John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus uh, had died. Actually, Lazarus got really, really sick, and he was going to die. And the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, who was at a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. It was on the other side of the Jordan River. And they sent word to Jesus that their, his friend Lazarus was really sick, and they needed him to come and heal Lazarus. Well, the Bible says that Jesus waited two days. And it was a two-day journey from Bethany, of beyond the Jordan, to Bethany, where Lazarus lived. And so, or it was a day's journey. And so it took one day for the servant to get to Jesus. Jesus waits two days, and it takes Jesus a day to get back. So in the meantime, Lazarus has died, and he's, de he's been dead for four days. And they bury Lazarus. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus shows up. And the sisters aren't happy. In fact, they're very disappointed in Jesus. They say so. 
They go up to Jesus, and this is what they say. Each of them, separately, says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, there's something inherent in there that we've talked about before, and that is disappointment. Lord, if you had been here and you weren't, we call for you. And we know that you could heal him, but you didn't. And now our brother died. Our brother died because you didn't come when we called you. That's disappointment. Any of you ever feel disappointed in God? Something was supposed to go one way and it didn't go that way? You prayed and prayed and prayed and that prayer wasn't answered the way you thought it should be? Maybe you've got a child that's wandering from the faith. Maybe you've got a relationship in your past that didn't work out the way you thought it would. Maybe you're in a relationship now that's falling apart. And you're just disappointed that God hasn't worked it out yet. Why? God, I know that you can fix this. I know that you can heal this this problem. You can heal this person. You can heal my heart. But you haven't yet. What's going on? And we feel that disappointment that the sisters felt. But Jesus had something better in mind. God often has something better in mind. Something that we can't even conceive of. And sure enough, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He wasn't just going to heal him. He was going to demonstrate his power over, over the grave. He was going to demonstrate his power over death. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. He called out to him in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out of the tomb alive. He had been dead four days, certifiable, verifiable, toe-tag dead. And yet God, Jesus, in the power of God, raised him from the dead. Well, because of this, I mean, let's face it, If you hear that somebody raised somebody from the dead after four days, you're thinking, that guy may be something special. He may be something like we've never seen before. And so what happens is is that many people start putting their faith and trust in Jesus. Many people start believing in Jesus, believing that he is the Messiah, believing that he's the Son of God. And this really irks the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It really irks the chief priests and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. And they get together and they say, this isn't good. They're losing their power. They're losing their prestige. They're losing their authority because everybody's flocking to Jesus. And we got to do something about this Jesus. And Caiaphas, the high priest, said this in John eleven fifty: You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Guys, we got to protect our jobs. We got to protect our land. We got to protect our position. We got to protect our prestige. We got to protect our authority. If all these people keep putting their faith in Jesus, that means they're not going to listen to us and we're going to lose everything. We got to kill him. That's what they say. We got to kill this guy. And they, ha- they hatch a plot to kill Jesus. That leads us up to John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, Jesus was anointed by his friend Mary. They're back at Lazarus' house in in Bethany, the one closest to Jerusalem. And they're at Lazarus' house, and they're having a banquet in honor of Jesus. After all, it's the least they can do. He did raise their brother from the dead. And Mary, Lazarus' sister, Martha's waiting on everybody. 
But Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, and she takes an expensive jar of perfume, one that we find out was worth a year's wages, and she pours the perfume on Jesus' feet. Now, they didn't have sidewalks back then. They didn't have paved roads. No, Jesus' feet were dirty and dusty, maybe a little smelly. And what does Mary do? She pours this expensive perfume on his feet, and then she lets down her hair. It's a sign of humility. Women in those days wouldn't put their hair down. But as a sign of humility, she lets her hair down. And then she dries Jesus' dirty, dusty feet with her hair. And could you imagine putting your hair on somebody's feet? Ew. But as a sign of adoration and love and humility and service, she washes his feet with her hair. It's beautiful. That's love and adoration right there. Judas, good old Judas, right? Pipes up. Says, why are we wasting this perfume? It could have been sold. We could have sold that perfume for it was worth a year's wages and we could have given the money to the poor. What a noble guy, right? Except we find out that Judas was the one who held the money back for the disciples and he had been stealing from it. I'm sure he saw that jar of perfume and thought, hmm, we sell that and put the money in the purse and I've got a bunch of money. I can go to McDonald's a whole lot. Well, for filet of fish on Friday, sorry. That brings us to John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. Take a look at your Bible. We're going to take this one verse at a time, one couple verses at a time. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Stop right there. When it says great crowd, we're talking tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of pilgrims and worshipers in Jerusalem for Passover. This was the great feast. This was the big deal. This is the greatest event in Israel's history, the deliverance of, e of Israel from the uh, slavery and, and oppression in Egypt. And this takes place thousands of years before Jesus comes on the scene, and every year the Jews gather in Jerusalem for Passover. This is where they remember how the, the death angel passed over their homes when they put the blood on their doorposts. They're celebrating something wonderful, this deliverance. And they celebrate it every single year. It's one of the three great feasts of, of the Jewish faith. So you've got these tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, and they hear that Jesus is coming. And they've heard rumors. If they hadn't seen him, they'd heard rumors. This is the man who, who walked on water. This is the man who raises the dead. This is the man who fed a multitude. There's no one like him in all of Israel. We got to see this guy, and they rush out to see him. They rush out to where he is. Look at verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, the, the habit, the, um, the practice of waving palm branches went back a couple hundred, hundred years to the intertestamental period to the Maccabees. And waving palm branches became a sign of victory. 
that you would wave palm branches uh, for a victorious conqueror. And so the idea that Jesus is a king uh, was, full, uh, was on their minds. And so they, they take the palm branches and they go out uh, to the road where Jesus is coming from Bethany up by the Mount of Olives. And they're, they're waving their palm branches shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. This word Hosanna literally means please save us. It literally means to save us or save us now. It comes, this passage comes, uh, it's like a fulfillment of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This is what it says. It says, Lord, save us. It means Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this psalm, Psalm 118, is what's known as the Song of Ascent. These were the songs that the people would sing on their way to Jerusalem for the feasts. They were traveling songs. How many of you ever sang songs in the car when you were going on vacation? The wheels and the bus go. Now, first service did it better. I'm ashamed of you. The wheels and the bus go. Thank you. 99 bottles. No. We don't sing those traveling songs. But these were the songs that they would sing on their way to Jerusalem for the festival. And so this is a song that they would have been singing leading up to Passover. So this idea of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this would have been fresh on their minds. And there was a messianic fervor, a messianic fever around Jesus. That could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one who's going to deliver us? Could he be the one who's going to save us? But they didn't know he came to save us from our sins. He thought that the, they thought that the Messiah was going to come and save them from the Romans, those Gentile Romans who had occupied Israel. They thought, for sure, this is the guy. If he can raise the dead, he can surely deliver us from the Romans. But see, Jesus didn't come to save him from the Romans. It's not why Jesus came. He wasn't that kind of Messiah. He wasn't that kind of Savior. And that brings us to verses 14 and 15. Look at those. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And see, this passage here is a, uh, it's a fulfillment of a prophecy from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah wrote these words in, in chapter 9, verse 9. In, in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9 in Zechariah, he's writing about Alexander the Great. And here he writes about Jesus. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's interesting is that this, this prophecy was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, and he fulfills it on an ordinary day in Jerusalem. But he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And that's significant because donkeys are humble. A, a king who came to a city in order to conquer it would ride in on a stallion, a, a powerful animal, to demonstrate his, his might. And yet Jesus rides in on a donkey. Or, or a king would, would come to a city on the back of a chariot, would ride in on a chariot. Again, stately. But Jesus is on the back of a lowly, humble donkey. Like I said, he didn't come to conquer the city. He came to die for our sins. And that's what he did. 
and the crowds that shouted Hosanna on Sunday turned on him. And on Friday they shouted, crucify him. Now, we see that Jesus is a different kind of king. He's not the conquering king that wants to conquer the world or conquer the cities. No, Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We'll talk about that in a minute. But one of the things about Jesus I think that we need to realize is that Jesus wants to be our king. Jesus Christ is the king of the world. Is he the king of your life? Let me say that again. Jesus Christ is the king of the world. Is he the king of your life? There's three ways. There's three ways that we want Jesus to be our king. Three ways that we need Jesus to be our king. So I got three questions for you. Is Jesus the king of your house? Is Jesus the king of your house? What does that mean? What does it look like for Jesus to be the king of your house? Let me, let me first address husbands and fathers. Hey guys, how you doing? It's doing okay till you started talking to me. Is Jesus the king of your house, guys? Is he the king of your house? Are you the father that God, that God wants you to be? Are you the father that Jesus wants you to be? Are you the husband that Jesus wants you to be, guys? Do you love your spouse? Do you love your wife as Christ loves the church? Because that's what we're commanded to do, guys. We are commanded to love our wives as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? He died for the church. Amen. He died for the church. He laid down his life for the church. He sacrificed everything for his church. Guys, are we willing to sacrifice everything for our wives? Are we, just, are we willing to sacrifice our agendas? Are we willing to sacrifice our pride? Are we willing to sacrifice our anger, our tempers? Are we willing to sacrifice our lust? Are we willing to sacrifice everything for our wives? Is Jesus the king of your house? Is, what kind of a father are you, guys? What kind of dad are you? Are you the kind of dad that exasperates your children? Because the Bible says that fathers should not exasperate their children. That we should train them and raise them up to love the Lord. Dads, are you exasperating your children? Are you being the kind of father that God wants you to be? Is Jesus the king of your house? Wives, oh, you thought you were off the hook. Wives, do you honor your husband? Do you respect your husband? Do you respect your husband? Because the Bible says that you should respect your husband. Respect his position as the head of the household. That's where God put him. And don't worry, God, will, God is watching. If your husband isn't being the kind of guy that he needs to be, the father and the husband he needs to be, God is going to judge him. But he will also judge you on the way that you treat your husband. Do you respect your husband? Teenagers, say what? Teenagers, I see you. Do you honor your parents? Do you honor your father and mother? Do you obey your parents, even when it's hard? Even when you don't understand, why do I have to do that? Well, why do I have to be home by 9 o'clock? All my friends get to stay out. I'm not their parent. Never heard that before, have you? Pa teenagers, do you honor your parents? Because that's what God calls you to do. That's what Jesus calls you to do, is to honor your parents, even when it's hard, even when you don't understand. Honor and obey your parents. Grandparents, Oh, is Jesus the king of your home? 
Is Jesus the king of your home? Are you doing what he would have you do as grandparents? Here's a question. Do you usurp the authority of your kids? You know what I mean. Don't tell mom. Don't tell dad. It'll be our little secret. I know they don't want you to have Doritos, but this is grandma's house. I know they don't want you to stay up late, but this is grandma's house. Are you usurping your kids' authority as the parents of their children? I heard a song once. It says, when, when mama says no, when daddy says no, grandma says maybe. And when grandma says maybe, she means yes. Or here's a better question, grandparents. What kind of relationship do you have with your daughter-in-law or your son-in-law? Do you support them? Do you love them as your own children? Are you supporting your daughter-in-law, your son-in-law? Or are you at constantly at odds with them? Just a thought. Just, just throwing it out there. Is Jesus the king of your home? Second question, is Jesus the king of your job? No, Jesus has nothing to do with my job. Jesus has everything to do with your job. The Bible says that we should work as though we are working for the Lord rather than for men, rather than for people. We should work as though we're working for God. So what kind of worker are you? Do you work with integrity? Do you work with character? Do you do the things that, that God wants you to do at work? Are you responsible? Or do you cut corners? Or do you take the easy way out? Do you gossip about your coworkers? Here's a question, okay? This is, this is the question. Um, are you the kind of worker, are you the kind of person at work that makes people think that the church is full of hypocrites? Oh, yeah. Are you the kind of person, teenagers, are you the kind of person at school that makes people go, the church is full of hypocrites? Are you that kind of employee? Are you that kind of student? Are you that kind of person that makes people go, the church is full of hypocrites? Or are you telling people, are you living a consistent life? Is, does your lifestyle uh, not betray the fact that you're a follower of Jesus? If people at work were to find out that you're here right now, what would they say? If you checked in at GFCC on your Facebook account, on your phone right now, and people went, <laughs> it's got to be a joke, right? He's playing Pokemon out front, right? I know he's not at church. Or teenagers, if you were to check in on your phone at GFCC, you know, praising God on Palm Sunday. People, you get to school tomorrow, and they'd be like, you went to church yesterday? I had no idea that you went to church. Is Jesus the king of your job? Is Jesus the king of your school? Last question, is Jesus the king of your heart? Have you surrendered your life to him completely? Have you surrendered your heart to him totally? Are you following Jesus as your king? Is he the king of your heart? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Have you confessed your faith in him? Have you gotten baptized yet? If you're not ready to do that yet, I'm, we're not going to force you. We're not going to coerce you. We're not going to twist your arm. But it's something you've got to think about. If you, haven't, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, why not? If you haven't started trusting Jesus for salvation and forgiveness, why not? 
What's holding you back? Do you not want to surrender to him? Do you not want to submit to him? To his authority? Is Jesus the king of your heart? Is Jesus the king of your life? You know, there's coming a day that we're all going to bow down before Jesus. In John 19, 19, Jesus went to the cross and he carried his own cross through Jerusalem. And they nailed his hands and feet to it. And they raised it up. And, and this is what the Bible says. It says that Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And they didn't want him to do that. They, he is not our king. But even Pilate recognized that Jesus was a king. And there's coming a day when everyone will realize and recognize that Jesus is the king. Because it says in Revelation 19.16, On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Everyone will see him. And they will see that name, that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Is he your king? Are you serving him as the king? Are you honoring him in your home and at your job and at school? Are you honoring him as your king? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says this. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is the King. And whether you do it willingly here on earth, or if you do it forcefully, if you're forced to do it in heaven one day, standing before Him in judgment, you will bow down before Him. You will confess Him as King. Because that is who Jesus is. Jesus is the king our father in heaven we praise you for the king jesus we honor him today on this day on this palm sunday we honor him as king and lord and savior help us O oh god to to not take him lightly but to surrender and submit to him in every area of our lives heavenly father we want to praise you today for sending our King. Help us to submit to Him this week in everything that we say and do. We bless you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.